to the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what they say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach, here at The Theology Pit, and we are in our Bible series. I think this is going to be part six, I believe, of going through it. We've been talking about intentional errors, unintentional errors, those sort of things. Hey, look, if you have any questions... If you have any comments, if you have anything that you would like to talk to me about, email me, samson at samsonstick.com. Send me a note on uh, Facebook at The Theology Pit. Go to the uh, the website, samsonstick.com, and there on the website, I mean, there are links for the email, there are links for the Facebook page, all that fun stuff. Um, if you would do me a favor, head over to iTunes, uh, give me a rating, a star rating, one to five, however you think that these podcasts are going. Hey, you could even give me, uh, you know, comments on, um, you know, the production value, you know, what you think of the, uh, the way that I'm, uh, I'm doing these, you know, maybe, maybe you just don't like, you know, I don't know the, the music, the sound, the audio, whatever, just, you know, let me know. Uh, maybe you do like it. Let me know that too. Um, you could also leave a, uh, you know, a comment or a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate that. And of course, you know, spread this around to your friends. Uh, let people know if you're, if you're in a church or in a Bible study, you think you'd find this stuff interesting. One of these, one of these podcasts, you know, feel free to tell people about it. Don't, you know, don't hold it back. Don't be shy is what I'm saying. Don't be shy. Um, so we were going over intentional errors and unintentional errors. And this, you know, I, I was focusing on the new Testament. Okay. The reason being is because we have so much, you know, of it, uh, to look at that. It's a great example of the type of variants that you get in ancient literature. Okay. And as you saw, the ones that I went over, what I think are the biggest errors, the biggest possible problems really weren't that big of problems at all. So we could be pretty confident that what we have are the right words. But the question then comes, do we have the right books? And I know I haven't touched on the Old Testament yet, and that's going to be a separate uh, session, a separate, you know, part, but we're going to stick with the new Testament. And today we're going to discuss, and probably for a little while here, we're, we're going to discuss a lot about the canonization of the new Testament. You know, how do we know that we have the right books that's coming up next on the theology pit. All right. So you know, the question always comes in about, you know, uh, when it comes to the Bible and sometimes Christians get on me about this. Um, you know, if, if I seem to be overly critical when it comes to the, the Bible, when it comes to the new Testament and, you know, maybe I am overcritical in the theology pit. I really want to be overly critical in, um, in my personal life, whenever I'm practicing my faith and I'm with other believers, it's not appropriate. It's not like I go around talking about this stuff all the time, but um, I, I think that we should know, you know, where our Bible comes from. I mean, there are churches that are built on the Bible, and I don't mean the Bible as this like concept, as this idea. I mean a very specific 
book, a very specific translation. Okay. And they say that this translation is the best translation. And this translation is what all the other translations should be held up to. That this translation is the word of God. The other translations are a perversion of the word of God. So when you have that, and we've looked at the concept of, you know, the errors, the unintentional errors and, and you know, those sort of things, unless you have a Bible and a translation that actually has those in their notes, you know, that, that talks about this stuff, how can you really be sure? I mean, you could just kind of go off of a, a blind faith, which is unbiblical, but you could go off of a faith that just says, look, what we have is good enough. Okay. And, and I would agree with that, the, you know, that, um, that sentiment, what we have is good enough. If, if you don't know any Greek, you don't know any Hebrew, you can only read English. You pick up a Bible, you pick up the net Bible, for example, and you read it. Generally, what you're getting is the word of God. Okay. It's what was written. It's what's being communicated. Now there are different aspects to this. I understand. But if you are saying that the Bible I have is what God wrote down, almost like the, the, you know, the 10 commandments type thing where the finger of God wrote the 10 commandments on the tablet, that is a bigger pill to swallow and it's almost indefensible. But, you know, there are people that hold to that and people that would say, well, if I don't believe that, I mean, there, there are people that may casually listen to the theology pit or come by, you know, just to see what I'm talking about, to see what's going on. And I've had people say to me things about like, you know, my theology and the way I do theology is that if, you know, what do I use whenever I'm doing these podcasts, whenever I'm teaching, whenever I'm doing anything, um, do I use anything but the Bible? And I'm like, well, yeah, I have other resources that I use, of course. And they say, well, then this, this is worthless. What you're doing is worthless. Okay. I don't find it to be worthless. Hopefully you don't find it to be worthless, but there are some people that do. Also, I have, I've met Christians that if I'm not using the King James version of the Bible, I'm not using the word of God and I'm actually leading people into damnation. You know, if you went through my uh, series on on salvation, on justification, I did. You can understand where those people are coming from, um, you know, and, and their understanding of a you know satisfaction view of the atonement, and not just speaking of of Roman Catholics because they wouldn't make that claim, but speaking of um, you know people that are the, like the King James only type people, or maybe like a Bible Baptist type thing in North America. I know uh, Southern Baptist is different from you know North American Baptist. But, you know, the, the claim that would be made is that if I'm not using the King James version, because it's called the authorized version, and even though they've never looked into the word authorized and, and what that means, the Texas Receptus, the received text, um, they would still make this, this claim on me. But there's really two aspects in this next part that I'm getting in, and that's that the Bible is a collection of books, number one. And do we have the right collection? Okay, because when people say that the King James version of the Bible or any version of the Bible, that this is the word of God and they hand it to somebody and somebody knows nothing about Christianity or maybe they're a new Christian and you hand them the Bible and say, this is the word of God. They are going to assume that every single thing that has been written in that book is the word of God, including the table of contents. 
So if your table of contents differs from somebody else's table of contents, then you immediately freak out. And I had someone, I had this happen at work the other day. Um, you know, somebody was saying, uh, they asked me, well, how many, how many books are in the Bible? It was like a math thing that they were doing. Um, you know, you, you take the number 66, you subtract your age from it or something like that. And then like you add 50 or something. And then, you know, you get the, the year of your birth. But, um, you know, they, they just kind of threw that out there with number 66. Cause it, you know, it works mathematically. It's math magic. Um, and, and they said, Oh, okay. Well, my Protestant Bible has 66 books in it. So, um, I can, I can then use it. So they asked me how many books are in the Bible. I was like, well, it depends on your tradition and said, what? No, there's 66. And I was like, well, you know, in yours, I think in the Roman Catholic Bible, there's 72 that they have, uh, you know, six extra, um, maybe 71, um, depending, I mean, there, there are other denominations that have more than that. And really that's not a discrepancy with the new Testament. Everybody has the same number of books in the new Testament. It's, it's in the old Testament. And when we get to the old Testament, that's why I want to make it a separate, uh, subject of how they've determined, um, you know, the, the division of books. I mean, let's say just, just real quick and old Testament stuff. Um, if you have a, a scroll of, you know, Samuel, Okay. And it's a big scroll. It's a long scroll and it breaks at some point. Okay. Well now you have first and second Samuel. So how then when you're making your Bible out, do you make Samuel all one book or is it two books? Same thing with Kings, same thing with Chronicles. Um, so that can you know, determine the number of the books that you're counting. And I've always found that interesting that people take these numbers and they don't, they don't think twice about saying that this number is the word of God. It's, it's like when, you know, the, the, the chapters and verses that are in, in your Bible, those were not in the originals. There were not, you know, these chapter and verse numbers in the originals. Those were added, you know, later on. I want to say like, you know, uh, 13th, 14th century, maybe I'll have to double check on that when we get to that. But these were added later on. Um, how many chapters does the gospel of Matthew have? Well, that depends on what era you're looking at. You know, I mean, well, why does it have, I think, I think it's 28. Why, why does it have that many? Well, because the printer that put them in was the one that was the most popular and that's how it got done. And that people, people will, will ascribe like, you know, um, uh, not theological. Well, yeah, I guess theological significance to it. You know, um, you know, six, six, six is the, uh, the, the number of the beast. Well, look at John chapter six, verse 66. And it, it see that, you know, this is where those who didn't believe Christ turned away and left and see that's, that's the mark of the beast. And that's what it's like. No, those numbers do not correlate at all. Those numbers are just like arbitrary reference points. So when it comes to your table of contents, there is no table of contents in any book of the Bible. No book of the Bible says this is the table of contents. These are the books that you have to have. So if that's the case, then how do we know what books go in the Bible and why were some books put in and other books were not one of the, uh, um, I would say classic or not really classic, but the, the most popular misconception of the new Testament is, is this, that, in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, 
um, a group of men got together and voted on which books were going to be in the Bible and which books were not going to be in the Bible. And so they had, it's like they had this big collection of books and that they were all looking at. And they said, huh, I like this book. Let's put that one in there. I don't like this book. Let's leave that one out. And then after they were done, they said, okay, this is the Bible and this is what the Christian faith will be based off of. And then Christianity began. Okay, maybe that's a little hyperbolic. Maybe people didn't say Christianity began, but a lot would. A lot would say, look, Christianity comes from the Bible, even though we've explained that it doesn't. But they would say Christianity comes from from the New Testament. And if the New Testament wasn't officially written um, until or officially, you know, put together, even written, you know, put together until 325 AD, well, then you must have had a whole bunch of different Christianities that lost. And this one Christianity won out. And that's total fable, but people buy it because, hey, you know, it's been passed around. It's on the interwebs on, you know, and and people believe that. And that's just how it that just seems to be how it is, you know. But I want to talk about like the canonization of the New Testament. And at the same time, I have to talk about um, the fact that the the scripture itself is what call is called god breathed theonoustos that it is inspired and i can tell you this right now that we have a fallible collection of infallible books some people want to state that no we have an infallible collection of infallible books and there's a couple groups that say that and there's you know reasons why they say it um, but, but, you know, if we're, if we're being honest and we're saying, look, unless we found a list written by a prophet written by an apostle, you know, how can we rightly say, Hey, this stuff is infallible. This is an infallible collection. I think we have a very hard time doing that. And if we can do it for just that, well, why can't we do it for other things? And what's the criteria for saying it? A lot of people, a lot of Christians agree that it's in, it's an infallible collection. I mean, that's it. It's really hard to say. So we talk about, okay, the number of books that are in the New Testament. And there's 27. All right. Some of them, I mean, uh, calling them books is a stretch, you know, when it's, it, it might be like 14 verses, 25 verses, 28 verses, whatever. But um, I mean, they're short letters. You know, the majority of them are letters. Few of them are books. Let's, I'll just I'll just say it like that. Majority of the stuff is letters. Um, this number of 27, 85, 90% of these 27 books has always been agreed upon. Always. Always. There, there weren't any other contenders. There were some that came later on, and there, there were a few of them, a few books that were you know, that were used not in a, a type of devotional or type of worship setting, a, a type of uh, liturgy at the time. Christians were reading them in the same way that, you know, uh, Christians may have on their bookshelf the, the work of Josephus, okay? I mean, back before the internet, TV, and all this, in the days of yore, two books that you would see generally on somebody's bookshelf that are reading by candlelight, um, would be the Bible and Josephus. 
And the reason why is because Josephus, being a general at the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and this is prior to the introduction of dispensationalism um, within Christianity with um, a uh, futurist understanding of eschatology, the end times, that, you know, these things in Revelation are going to happen in the future. Those were they, before that really grabbed hold, um, the secret rapture, um, you know, the, the, the rapture concept that goes along with dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is just a fancy word that just means... Um, you know, time periods that there were different dispensations that, you know, God worked in different ways with different groups of people and generally all time um, recorded in scripture is broken up into seven parts. And, you know, so that's what I mean by dispensationalism, people that you know, believe that way. And also another significant part of it is that they believe that there is a separation between the church and Israel. Um, but Josephus with, you know, being a general during the, the, uh, the structure of the temple in 70 AD and, you know, he wrote about it. He was of great interest to a lot of people, to a lot of Christians. Um, so they would read his works to kind of get this idea of what life was like in the time of Christ, what was going on, what were people thinking? And there are of course other works, you know, that, that happened then, but not as readily available, but, just because maybe you would, you know, find a, a, a house. I know, you know, archaeologically it's not old enough to happen. But let's say you found you went to somebody's house and you found, you know, their their bookshelf. And you said, what did these people believe back then? Oh, look, they believe this. And and you saw Josephus next to the Bible. You're like, oh, OK, that's really interesting. And let's say you found another site of the same time period. And you found the same type of collection, Josephus next to the Bible. And then you found a hundred of them, a thousand of them, and all have a copy of Josephus next to the Bible. It wouldn't be too far-fetched for you to start thinking that, hey, you know what? These people saw this book, of this work of Josephus, on par with the Bible. Maybe it was like an extra addition to the Bible. Now, Mormons, in uh, their Book of Mormon, they actually have included in their Bible all of these extra books. Well, not those extra books, but a bunch of extra books, okay? Hang on, let me, I'm just grabbing mine. Hang on. So I had to reach over and grab my Book of Mormon here. All right, so in, in the Book of Mormon, you have um, a lot of ad additional books, but they are, they're woven through, okay? It's not like they have a separate section, okay? It's a lot like, okay... If you're if you're Roman Catholic, you have in your Old Testament what's called the Deuterocanonical books. And these are I don't want to say additional books because I know that sounds bad, you know. But to a Protestant, these are, you know, a, a additional books. Um that the um Council of Trent canonized. Deuterocanonical means second canon, and said, you know, that this is the official, you know, list here. And it, it just deals with the Old Testament, doesn't deal with the New Testament. And so you would look at that and say, oh, okay, these are extra books. And they, it's not like they're at a separate section at the end. Okay. They are, you know, woven through the Old Testament. Maybe there's some versions that have it at the end, like, you know, they kept it separate, but most, most often it's, you know, in there. So in the book of, of Mormon, uh, in addition, I think I'm pretty sure they use the King James version only. But then they have these additional books, like um, the first book of Nephi, second book of Nephi, book of Jacob, book of Enos, book of Jerome, uh, book of Omni, the words of Mormon, book of Mosiah, 
I think I'm saying that right. Messiah, Messiah. It's not Messiah. It's Messiah. Um, Book of Alma, uh, Helaman, uh, Third Nephi, Fourth Nephi, uh, the Book of Ether, not Esther, Ether, and the Book of Moroni. Okay. And so then they have also in there, like, you know, um, Doctrine and Covenants, um, Official Declarations, Pearl of Great Price. Um, yeah, they have they have a lot of different things that are in their, you know, in their in their Bible. Now, generally, their Book of Mormon books supposedly take place during Old Testament times. OK, um, but and I say supposedly because, you know, these books are not found anywhere in ancient literature, anywhere in existence. Nobody's even heard of them. Nobody's ever written about them. They were found to be inscribed on, you know, golden tablets that Joseph Smith, by wearing his magic spectacles or a, a, a viewing stone that he could see through, could then decipher the neo-hieroglyphics and translate it, okay? And then, you know, after he was done, before anybody could ever see the golden tablets, of course, the golden plates, um, they were, you know, uh, taken back up into heaven. And he, and he found them in upper state New York. So whenever it comes to, okay, well, what books are in your Bible? There's a lot of different opinions out there, all right? And, and people have said, well, all right, Samson, we know that, but what about like the Nag Hammadi Library, you know, that was found? They had a lot of, you know, apocryphal literature in it. And, and it's New Testament stuff, not Old Testament stuff. This is New Testament stuff. And again, just because you found things in a library doesn't mean the people believed all of them. It doesn't mean that it was a part of their faith. Um, I have a, I mean, if you were, were to look at my library and you didn't know anything about me, you would say, boy, this guy has a pretty big interest in religion leaning more towards Christianity, but just all of religion in general, all of beliefs in general. Let's, let's put it more basically like that because I have books written by atheists. Um, I have, you know, Dawkins and Harris and Denison, you know, that sit in my, in my library. Um, I have, you know, uh, of course the book of Mormon, I have the Quran, I have, you know, all these different, um, even even my theologies and even my 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 religious books are are from different perspectives. They're from uh, different angles because I like to get a, a kind of a bigger picture. I'm not mixing doctrines. I'm understanding them, and you know, and I I tend to read extremely broadly, and my library shows that. Uh, I I saw an apologist online one time said that he got a special stamp made um, for his library where he could stamp his books that say heretical for research purposes only. And I've been thinking about getting one of those stamps because if I were to die and, you know, my kids, when they got older, got an interest in, you know, me and what I was doing and started reading through all this stuff, they'd be like, wow, dad was in some really weird stuff. Did he really believe this? Well, if you have that stamp in there, then that would say, well, no, this is just for research purposes only. Um, if you... Uh, don't have that, you know, people think you're in weird stuff, like, like with certain libraries and, and those sort of things. And, and eventually people can start thinking that, Hey, this is what you believe rather than, you know, you 
had a, a an interest in what um, was out there and what what people wrote and what people believed. Um, think about like, and I think last week I I, I talked about um, uh, Ptolemy. I didn't name him, but the uh, um, the uh, the Greek emperor who wanted a copy of the Hebrew Bible and he wanted it in Greek, and that's where the Septuagint came from and everything. Um, you know, you, you think about that. Well, you look at his library. Well, what did he believe? Well, I mean, if you, if that's all you knew. Said, so, well, the only recordings that we have of what he had in his library was, you know, the the Hebrew Bible. Oh, he must have been a, a God fearer. He must have been Jewish. He must have been no, well, not necessarily. You know, because the the um the movie, the Book of Eli, or yeah, the the Book of Eli, I think it was called, with uh, Denzel Washington. Um, you know, he had he had memorized the Bible. And, you know, they wrote out a copy and they put it on the bookshelf of, you know, religious writings to preserve it next to the Quran, next to, you know, at the end scene, next to all these other um, religious works to have a copy of it. Well, it's kind of like the same thing. You know, if you if you study these kind of things and, and you really look at um, what people believe, uh, your library is going to look pretty eclectic. It's not going to be singularly themed. When, when you look at somebody's library and you see it's singularly themed and it's it just looks like an echo chamber. It's just a bunch of authors all saying the same thing in different ways or from the same perspective or from the same viewpoint in different ways. Then, you know, you could be kind of suspect of what that person believes. And whenever you're talking to them, you can get this idea that if you say something that's contrary to what they believe, they're immediately going to take it and they're going to run with it and say, well, you're heretical in this way. And it's like, well, no, just because I'm using a term that may have been used by somebody that you claim is heretical, I'm, I don't agree with everything that they say. For example, um, the word uh, or the, the, the phrase only begotten, that's usually translated only begotten in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word only begotten that's in there, whenever they were uh, going to use it in the, the Nicene Creed, there was an argument over doing that because only begotten was hijacked by the Arians to say, okay, well, if there was a time when he was begotten, then there was a time that he was not. And so, you know, if, if Jesus is said to have began at some point, well, then he's not really God. He's not of the same substance as God. He's of similar substance to God, not same substance. The difference between uh, homoousios, um, same substance, and homoousios, similar substance. And some even had the, um, the dictation of the spelling of monogenes. If it had two G's in it or two gammas in it, then it was okay. But if it had one, it was heretical. And this is why a lot of times it's translated only unique, which is the better translation because it's it's getting the the meaning out. Uh, the words themselves may translate, you know, only begotten, uh, mono, you know, meaning one, uh, geneo or genes, um, meaning, um, think of the word genesis, beginning, uh, order. Um, they would say, well, only unique son of God, which, I mean, we, when we get into Trinitarianism and Christology, we'll go through that a lot more. But the point being is that, you know, people would take a word that you might say and immediately throw it to a heresy. So 
when you're looking at a collection of somebody's books, you get a kind of a good idea of where they're at. All that to say, whenever you're looking at the New Testament table of contents, go through every Christian tradition you can think of. Get a copy of the Bible that they use and focus on their New Testament table of contents. Guarantee you they'll be the same. There's really only one tradition that I can think of right now that would have a different number. And I think, I think it's only like one more book or maybe two more books. And we'll, we'll get into that, you know, a little bit later, but excuse me, but people, um, you know, they make the arguments of, well, what about all these, you know, apocalyptic books and everything? Okay. If you've read them, you can see that, boy, there is a difference in, you know, in, in what, and what was said and what was written and, and, you know, what, what they are. And what I mean by that is that when you compare the New Testament, when you've read the New Testament, when you studied it and you get a feel for the writing and, and what's being said in it, what kind of uh, things are happening, kind of literature it is, it just looks really, really different from the way that the apocryphal uh, books are written. And there's some other things. There's a very key way that you can tell uh, the difference between an apocalyptic book and a book of the Bible, a book of the New Testament, uh, one that belongs in in the canon. Um, One of those ways is when it was written. That's number one. But I think I think easiest, like, you know, if you don't understand paleography, you know, study of uh, ancient writings. And, and the wording and that sort of thing, then um, y- you can look at, do they have names? If they have names, that's a really, really, really good indication that they're possibly a forgery. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. And, and what I mean by, you know, the different names is that, okay, Take the Gospel of Matthew, for example. It was not titled the Gospel of Matthew. That was added later on. It didn't have a name associated with it. The way people would want you to read what they wrote way back when, plagiaristically, was they would put somebody else's name on it. It's like if if I put on the internet that, you know, I found a short story by Stephen King, and here's a new short story by Stephen King get on the right message boards, you get into the right um, chat rooms, you get in the right places, you can start spreading that around pretty, pretty well and pretty fast. If it's, if it's a similar style, it might not, it doesn't even really have to be a similar style, but you know, let's say that it is. And, um, and you get it spread around until you get a cease and desist letter from Stephen King's lawyers. But let's say that you're not going to do a Stephen King one because there's a lot of people that know his writing and would be able to look at it right away and say, uh, uh-uh, uh, that's, that's not it. I don't even have to, 
go any further than chapter one. This this doesn't sound anything like Stephen King. This doesn't you know follow his flow. You can say, oh oh no no, I'm I'm actually Stephen King, not Stephen King. I'm Stephen King's younger brother, you know Stephen King or his nephew Stephen King, something like that. You know where you are trying to lend credibility to your writing to get it read by people based off of a name. Now, not all of the um, of, of the uh, apocalyptic or, or apocryphal gospels, apocalyptic's different, apocryphal gospels um, were intended to be like, you know, straight up forgeries, like something like, you know, uh, uh, like another gospel, like some of the, some of them were, you know, uh, collect, they, they were, they were intended to be like novels that, you know, it was like in addition to a, a good story that was written in like the same vein as like scripture that you could, that you could read through. Um, they, there's some that are early in origin, of course. Um, but there's no evidence that any gospel, purporting to be what our four gospels are existed in the first century. And I'm getting this from, um, volume. <laughs> Let me look. Sorry. I just bumped my keyboard there. Um, volume eight in my, um, uh, anti-Nicene fathers, uh, collection of the church fathers writings here. And this is, um, this, this volume contains, um, you know, uh, the apocryphal gospels and acts, and it also contains, um, uh, excerpts and epistles and, you know, works by the 12 patriarchs. Um, and Oops, sorry about that. I, I bumped the keyboard and I, I shut the recording off. Um, but in it, uh, you, like I said, um, you know, it, it, it says that about, you know, it, they existed in the first century, but they were not something that was, they were not seen as on the same level as the new Testament writings as the other, as the other gospels. Some were used, some were passed around the Christian communities, those sort of things. Um, but they were not intended to be forgeries. They were more intended to be novels. Okay. And one of the ways that you, that you know this, and one thing that jumps out is that they were obviously written, you know, a hundred years or more, after the person died, who they claim to it have been written up, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example, that, you know, was written in the second century. OK, Thomas died in the first century. So you're looking at, you know, like the hundred years afterwards. Also, you know, um, there were letters that were written that were talking about there only being four Gospels. I think um, St. Irenaeus of Leon, France, um, in um, arguing against Marcion and, and, and his New Testament, and we'll get to that, um, talks about the fourfold Gospels and that that's all the more that they were. And remember, um, Irenaeus of Leon, France, was the disciple of Polycarp, who was the disciple of John the Apostle, who was the disciple of Christ. So you're not very far away from um, you know, the, the original authors and you can kind of look to them to say, well, what was considered scripture? What, you know, what, what do we consider the Bible? And, you know, you can kind of you know, trace it through that. Um, so it lends a little more credibility. Now here is a list of the, um, apocryphal works that are not included in the new Testament. Okay. Now the numbering of them is, is, odd because 
um, you would have maybe the same thing, the same work, but in a different language that might have a few different things in it. So it kind of gets its own, its own section. Okay. Uh, another thing is that uh, there's, I think roughly like 22, um, books in, in what, what would be the, the apocryphal new Testament. Uh, I think like 10 of them are in Greek, I think, and 12 are in Latin, which is different because everything in the new Testament was written in Greek. It was written, written in common Greek, Koine Greek. Um, and, and we can't find now that's not to say that, you know, it has to be because there are some views that, you know, the original gospel of Matthew was written in, um, Arabic, you know, or, or in Hebrew, but not in Greek. I, I disagree with that, but there are some people say there, you know, there, there are arguments for it. Um, but I, again, I think that Jesus spoke Greek, that he taught in Greek. Well, he definitely spoke Greek, but that he, he specifically taught in Greek. And that's why, you know, lending credibility to the new Testament being written in Greek, um, also giving validity to the Septuagint of that. And there's just weird things in there. Like, okay, let's say that Jesus did speak, you know, Arabic for, you know, argument's sake. Um, you know, he would do things where, you know, there'd be a little girl who was sick or had, had died or something like that. And he would go see them and he would say to them, like, you know, little girl, I say to you, get up and, and walk or, you know, something, something to that effect. I'd have to look the scripture up exactly. But, um, it's always preceded by the Arabic wording and then it's to translate, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Well, if it's all written in Arabic, why did that matter that that little part is preserved in Arabic unless that was um, unique or, you know, it, it it was something that he especially did for her. Maybe that was her native tongue, you know, but if it was all, you know, their native tongue, if it was all like the, the Arabic and not and not the Greek, then why would it be just that? Or if it was all Hebrew, then, you know, his, his last words on the, on the cross, why were, why were those left like that? But everything around it was translated. And then, you know, the apostle, the writer is, you know, then having to say, which means this, well, why would they even need that parenthetical statement that, that translation in there, if it's already, you know, the, if you're translating everything anyways, there, there's just a lot of, for me, a lot of, you know, nonsensical things. And there are people that, you know, argue with me against that. a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am disagree with my view on that, but I've always found that interesting. Um, so it's not to say that just because something's in a different language immediately discredits it, but here's a, a list of, you know, just some of the, some of the books and, and, Honestly, I, I think I counted like over 30, you know, just, just in this. And that's not counting the um, the other volume that I have, which has um, the, the works of, of Peter. And um, go to the other one here. Look at this table of contents here. Um, yeah, you'd have like the Gospel of Peter, uh, the Diatessaron of Tatian. Um, then you would have your apocalyptic literature there. Apocalyptic and romances, the revelation of Peter, the vision of Paul, the apocalypse of the Virgin, uh, the apocalypse of Sedrach, the new, the, the Testament of Abraham, the acts of Xanthope. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. And Polyxena, 
uh, the narrative of Zosimus, um, then you would have like the epistles of Clement, but those aren't even considered because, you know, when you read through Clement's stuff, he's even saying that, you know, he, he's, he's quoting a lot of things, uh, from like, you know, the, the writings, uh, to the Corinthians and, um, you know, that, uh, that, that sort of, um, uh, those sort of, uh, letters and stuff. And he himself would even say that, Hey, my, my stuff isn't anything like what the apostles have written or have, uh, said at all. Um, another thing is that, um, some of the forged letters that you would get, uh, that were being passed around were ones where people saw kind of an in like, okay, we, uh, technically the letters to the Corinthians that Paul wrote, there were four of them. Okay. We only have two of them. And the way that we know this is that we look at um, things like, you know, first Corinthians uh, verse nine or, or chapter five, verse nine. And let me, let me grab that and read that for you. All right. So first um, Corinthians chapter five, verse nine. Um, well, if you go back to verse, okay, it's yeah, sort of in, I mean, but this is just kind of stuck in real quick. Verse nine. Um, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now this is out of first Corinthians. Okay, the one that we would say came first. But he's saying, I wrote you in my letter, which means a previous letter that was written to them. So 1 Corinthians is actually our 2 Corinthians. Okay, so that's one of the ways, one of the internal evidence ways we know that um, yeah, he wrote other letters. And and there are other things like in... Um, you know, Ephesians and, um, and, and Colossians, they said, Hey, I, I wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, you know, send them a copy of yours and get a copy of theirs. Like, you know, this sort of thing. And then we don't have the letter to Laodicea, but, um, people would, you know, capitalize on that. They would see that and they would say, okay, um, I, I found Paul's letter. Here it is. It's the letter to the Laodiceans by Paul you know, or Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, just to give authority to it, putting Paul's name in it when, you know, Paul really didn't do that. He didn't say, you know, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. It was just, you know, to the church of Corinth or whatever. But, um, you know, but that's what they would do. And they would say, hey, we found the real first Corinthians. And, and really that, boy, does that open up a can of worms here? Like what if, you know, through archaeological digs or something happened, okay, and we actually found the real first Corinthians, Okay, this letter that Paul is specifically talking about, and we could authenticate it as um, as from Paul. Do you put it in your New Testament? Do all Bibles change? And then you say, no, that is or, you know, you give the argument of, well, you know, we didn't have it up till now. God must not want us to have it. Or do you say, no, no, no. God wants us to have it now because he's revealed it to us for our time now. We need to put that in. And we need to you know, talk about it. it needs to be there. It's the word of God. And I mean, there's other criteria that will go into that, that, that we'll talk about when it comes to canonization, uh, because it, if we did find it now, it would fail one of the criteria. But, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of make that point that when people were writing, they would you know be reading the new Testament, they would see stuff like this and they would say, okay, here's our, here's our in. So some of the apocryphal works, and you know, I think that we might, read through some of these, like before I even like move on with a lot of stuff, I think I might do a couple pits where we actually focus on the apocryphal works, what they say, you know, what they, um, 
because I, when people hear that, like the Gospel of Thomas, how many people out there have actually read the Gospel of Thomas, know what it says, have any reference point to it? Um, the Gospel of Judas that was found, how many people have that reference point? And actually, my um, uh, collection here is is you know, so old, like this, this, this volume of, of work is, is predates, um, the discovery of the, the gospel of Judas, um, that they found. So it's not included in here. So I guess that that would be another one that you could, you know, add to this. But, um, we have things called the, um, the Proto-Evangelium of James. Now, Proto-Evangelium means first gospel. Okay. It was the first good news. The word gospel means good news. Proto meaning first. So the, the, the first good news, um, whenever God said to Adam and Eve about, um, you know, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and he will, and the, and the serpent will bruise his heel. That was saying that, you know, there would be a minor injury that's not life threatening to, to the, the, the boy, to the son, to the seed. But, um, his attack would be a, a devastating blow to him. That was good news. That was the gospel. That was saying that, you know, indicating that sin and death would be taken care of. God was going to do it all and through the seed of the woman, as the Septuagint uh, translates as spermatos, which is is odd because women don't produce sperm. So in, in saying that, but that's called the Proto-Evangelium. Okay, the first gospel. So you have the same type of wording that's used, the Proto-Evangelium of James. All right. Another one would be the gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. Okay, pseudo meaning meaning false. Uh, pseudepigrapha work. Uh, pseudepigrapha, uh, graphia is writing. Uh, pseudo is false. Uh, so pseudepigrapha would be a false writing. So an, another word for like the apocrypha would be the pseudepigraphal works. So if you ever hear somebody talking about pseudepigrapha when they're talking about the New Testament, and usually that word is used, I would say more often than not, because when people talk about uh, the apocrypha, um, they're talking about the deuterocanonical books of the Old Testament that uh, the Roman Catholics may hold to some of them. I think that, uh, and again, I'm going to have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that they hold to like seven. And I think there's like 14 total. But again, it depends on how you break them up. And, you know, if you say, hey, this actually, you know, should be in 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 Daniel or this should be in, you know, there is a, um, you know, what, whatever. But it, it just depends on how you break them up and, and, you know, what you're saying to get that number. But usually those are called deuterocanonical books by Roman Catholics, pejoratively called apocryphal, which means hidden, which means hidden writing. Um so, you know, graphia, apocrypha, hopefully you can hear that word in there. Um, so it's their hidden writings. So pejoratively by Protestants to say these are hidden writings. I believe that it's good to read the apocrypha if you never have the deuterocanonical books. I would say all of the apocrypha, not just the ones that the Council of Trent said should be in the canon, but all of them. Um, you know, I think that you should read, you know, first, second, third, fourth Maccabees. Read them all. Good for historical understanding of what people were reading, of what they thought, of the time period, of what was going on, um, especially in the intertestamental periods between the Old and the New Testament. It's good to have that background. It's good to have that understanding. I think it'll fill in a lot of gaps uh, because, you know, you have... Um, you know, the, the, the close of the old Testament with them being in, in exile and, you know, all that stuff that's, that's going on. And then it, it opens up and now all of a sudden the Romans are in charge. 
the New Testament. Well, what happened in between there? Well, there's a lot of stuff that happened in between there. It's where we get, you know, the um, the, the feast of um, uh, Hanukkah uh, and and that you know celebration, understanding, and you know that that cultural reference that you have that's that's used in the New Testament. So it's good to know your Old Testament. It's good to know your Apocrypha and it's good to know your New Testament. And then when you start venturing out past the New Testament, it's not like writing stopped. Okay. Writing continued on, but the church being persecuted for, you know, over 300 years, you didn't have a lot of stuff preserved because if it wasn't seen as the word of God, if, I mean, if some, honestly, let's if somebody came up to you and said, you know, turn over those sacred writings or I'm going to kill you. And you are, you know, sitting there with your, um, you know, gospel of Thomas. I think you're going to really search yourself on, Hey, is this really the word of God? Am I willing to die over something that people aren't in agreement on that? This is the word of God. And you would hand it over. Uh, some who would hand over, you know, they were that was they were called traitors, traitores, uh, ones who hand over the papers. Um, that's where the you know the the word came from, the idea came from. But usually it was reserved for those who actually hand, handed over um, what people believed to be um, the the scriptures to believe believe to be the word of God. Talked about that very early on in the. Um, uh, in the theology pit series on salvation when we were discussed the second and third century. And I want to say that was probably around the second episode um, in that second and third episode. So you, you have this happening and this is all before the council of Nicaea and people are, you know, seeing this stuff as the word of God, as you know, it was part, like it wasn't officially canonized. Canon just means like measuring rod, but everybody agreed that this was, that this was scripture and this is all new Testament stuff. So, um, you would also have the, uh, the gospel of nativity of Mary, um, the history of Joseph, the carpenter, the gospel of Thomas, the Arabic gospel of the infancy of the savior, uh, the gospel of Nicodemus. And, and the, when you talk about like Thomas and the infancy narrative gospels, this is where you have Jesus as a kid and he's, you know, killing people, and, um, you know, he, uh, I think a, a boy makes fun of him. So he, you know, kills him. And then his parents are grieving over the loss of their child and Jesus, you know, strikes them blind and, you know, laughs about it or whatever. Um, you know, he's up on top of a rooftop playing with other kids. One of the kids falls off of the rooftop and dies. And everyone's like, Jesus killed him. Jesus killed him. And, and Jesus says, no, I didn't. They're like, yeah, you did. And so he then brings the child back to life. So the child can tell everybody, no, Jesus didn't kill me. I mean, you have that sort of stuff you know, going on. He makes a, a, a bird out of clay, out of the, out of the mud and then breathes life into it and, you know, brings it to life. And, you know, these are you know, the accounts of, you know, the, the gospel of, of Thomas in the infancy uh, narratives that were popular in the, uh, in the Southern part of Christendom. Okay, below the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Okay, and um, held by you know like Coptic Christians. Uh, these these were you know floating around that time. People believed, and you knew that it was still going on because in the seventh century, when Islam arose, um, you know you find that in the Quran when you read through the Quran, you find these infancy narratives 
almost exactly word for word of what it said in Thomas. And even, even in the Quran that I have, um, the, the footnotes in it that were written say that it came from the gospel of Thomas. Like it, it spells it out right there. And this is why, um, another reason why I should say that Muslims believe that Christians are in error, that they have a fallible book, that it's not the word of God because they don't have the gospel of Thomas in it, which is God's word to them. Again, they're not going by, you know, the, the tradition. They're not going by what, you know, everybody believed the way the Holy Spirit was working through the church. They're just going by, you know, what they saw and a very human centered. I mean, I've, I've, I've said it before. Um, when you read through the Quran and you know Christianity, you know what the Trinity is, you know your history, you know your background, um, the writers of the Quran really make Allah out to be an an imbecile. It's like he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't even know a a basic uh, formulatic structure of uh, the the Trinity that was recited in churches 400 years before, um, you know, the birth of Muhammad, roughly 400 years. And it was just that articulation of it, not the reality of it, but just the articulation was 400 years before, you know, the reality of it. Uh, you know, goes back to, um, you know, the, the time of Christ, you know, to the resurrection and, and Christ being God and, and, you know, those sort of things that we would see, like, you know, in the, um, I believe the book of Jude, you know, when, when you're reading through that and, but the book of Jude also, you know, mentions things in there like, um, uh, you know, about, uh, the body of Moses, uh, being, being fought over and, you know, this, this idea that, Hey, there were other, you know, writings that were floating around at the time that we would consider apocryphal that were referenced, but that doesn't mean that they should be canonized. And there's be, and there is a criteria that we'll get to, but here's some of the other books, you know, gospel of Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus was the, um, the, the, uh, man who went to Jesus in, um, John chapter three and says, how can a man be born again? And you know, that, that whole understanding. Um, then you have, um, the letter of Pontius Pilate concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, the report of Pilate, the, uh, procurator concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, the report of Pontius Pilate, the giving up of Pontius Pilate, the death of Pontius Pilate. Like these are all, you know, within these, uh, apocalyptic literature. But if you stick to, you know, certain stuff like the narrative of Joseph, uh, the avenging of the savior acts of the Holy apostle, Peter and Paul, the acts of Paul and, um, Thel- Thel- I can't pronounce this T H E L T H E C L A Thecla. Acts of Barnabas, acts of Philip, um, acts and martyrdom of the holy apostle Andrew. And you remember like, uh, St. Andrew was, uh, the saint of Scotland. And if you look at the, um, King James version of the Bible, the crest that's on it, you have the cross of St. Andrew, which was an X. He was said to be crucified on, you know, something that looked like an X. And so you can see that in the cross and that goes back to the history of how the, um, uh, King James Bible was put together and you know, who was put together for and, and what it was brought to and everything. And if you've ever seen like in the United States, the Confederate flag, the Confederate flag has the cross of St. Andrew 
on it. That's what the the X is. And um, the um, you know, 12 stars being it also has like a negation aspect of it. And the 12 stars being the, um, you know, the, the 12 colonies and how they were rejecting the, the federal um, overview. But it was a battle flag, you know, so what can you say? But, the, you know, the, the fact that, you know, states rights are being abused and, you know, those during the federal government's getting too big and different history. But, you know, anyways, um, they would have the martyrdom of Andrew here. The Acts of Andrew and Matthias, the Acts of Peter and Andrew, the Acts and Martyrdom of St. Matthew the Apostle, the Acts of the Holy Apostle Thomas, um, Consummation of Thomas the Apostle, the Martyrdom of the Holy and Glorious Apostle Bartholomew, the Acts of the Holy Apostle Thaddeus, um, the Acts of the Holy Apostle and Evangelist John the Theologian, uh, the Revelation of Moses, the Revelation of Esdras, um, revelation of Paul, revelation of John, the book of John concerning the falling asleep of Mary, the passing of Mary. So you have all of these different things that are considered, you know, um, uh, gospels, apostles, epistles, and, you know, and then when you look at all that, like, let's just say that including the 27 books we have of the New Testament and, you know, the, the couple that we have of Peter and of Jude and then all of these, let's say that you walked into somebody's um, library and they didn't have um, these all bound. OK, I mean, as, as I think we've talked about before, um, codexes didn't really come in the fashion until like the third and fourth century, although they were used very early first century, second century, it was one of the areas where, you know, Christianity was ahead of the technological curve that we were actually using Bibles, you know, the, the book form, the codex, the, the, from, you know, Biblos, um, meaning book. Um, so the word Bible actually just means book, but you know, where it was in, in the format that we use rather than in scrolls, um, you know, the secular world was still using scrolls for a very long time before they started, um, you know, adopting the Christian practice of, of using books. So let's say that you go in there and you, they don't have the, a bound book called the Bible or a bound book called the New Testament. Okay. They just have 27 loose books. All right. And these 27 loose books are not in the order that we're familiar with. I mean, even when it came to the fourfold gospel, and we'll talk about that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't always in the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, there were some that were in, in, in different orders. Um, his Luke and Acts go together. So, you know, some people wanted to keep them together, but you would have like, you know, um, yeah, Matthew and John because they were apostles and then Mark and Luke later on, because they weren't, they were just written under the authority of an apostle. And we'll talk more about that, you know, later on, I could hear the music playing here. Um, but we will, um, you know, discuss that, but let's just say, you know, we have all those and they're sitting on your shelf and they're not all together. Maybe these 27 that we have are actually mixed in with the rest of these that we have. Some people think that that's what it was like at the council of Nicaea, that you had this big bookcase of all these things and people going through going, huh, I think I like this one, but I don't like that one. Let's have a vote when that's not what happened. And we'll get into that a little bit more. We'll also get into the concept of inspiration. We'll get into, you know, why the, the criteria. That'll probably be like the big thing. But I also want to read through some of these uh, apocalyptic work or apocryphal works and uh, discuss them and, and talk about why. Thank you again for listening to Theology Pit. It's now time to close down the pit. 